High in the Austrian Alps sits the picturesque Lake Toplitz. Surrounded by mountains and dense forests, the lake looks like something from a fairy tale. But beneath its dark blue waters lies a dark secret. In 1943, the German army set up a naval testing station on Lake Toplitz's shores. There, the Nazis prepared attacks and strategies to tip the balance of power in World War II. But in 1945, as the war was winding down, the Nazis abandoned the base. Before their departure, they sunk all manner of war supplies into the lake. Blueprints, weapons, even ships. Over the years, locals and treasure hunters became convinced that this innocuous lake was the home to something even more valuable, a secret treasure. They believed that if someone dove deep enough, they'd find dozens of crates filled to the brim with Nazi gold. For seven decades, fortune seekers have searched the lake's depths. They've uncovered historical artifacts and bits of machinery, but the gold has remained just out of reach. And sadly, many of these hopefuls paid a steep price to scour the lake bottom. Toplitz is deceptively dangerous, and those who seek out the hidden wealth may ultimately lose something more valuable, their lives. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. Today, we'll explore whether millions of dollars worth of Nazi gold lies at the bottom of Lake Toplitz. Over 70 years of failed expeditions haven't turned up any concrete proof that the trove even exists. But that hasn't stopped many treasure hunters from searching and, in some cases, dying in the lake's deadly depths. From the shoreline, Lake Toplitz doesn't seem dangerous. It's a beautiful pool of clear blue water in the Austrian Alps. It's surrounded by cliffs and trees, making it a popular and picturesque tourist destination. It also has historic significance. The Nazis manned a base near the lake during World War II. Then, before their defeat, they dropped dozens of wooden boxes into the water. As for what these boxes contained, that's up for debate. There are two prominent theories about what's hidden in the lake. The most prevalent features gold that the Nazis wanted to keep away from the Allied forces. Alternatively, the crates may hold secret paperwork from Operation Bernhard, a covert counterfeiting plan. Hitler launched it to destabilize the Allies' economies. 
But whether the wealth was authentic or forged, the Nazis amassed a huge fortune in the 1940s, much of which is still unaccounted for. In the early days of World War II, as the Nazis marched across Europe, they pillaged everything they could. They stole from art museums, private residences, and the central banks of each country they tore through. Though Hitler coveted the art his regime collected, the real prize was the vast sum of gold they seized. It came in all shapes and sizes, from bars to coins to ingots. The Nazis tried to take as many precious metals as possible. Currencies might crumble during the instability of war, but gold always held value. It's hard to tabulate an exact figure, but in total, the Nazis may have collected what's now worth around $19 billion in gold. But when the tide of war shifted in favor of the Allies, Hitler ordered the Reichsbank in Berlin to empty their vaults. They released the vast fortune that Hitler had been hoarding for years. As for what happened to it afterward, that's up for debate. After Hitler's defeat, the Allies searched for the lost treasure. They found large caches hidden in strange locations, including a salt mine and a shipwreck off the Icelandic coast. But even with these discoveries, no one is sure if all the gold was accounted for. It was impossible to know how much the Nazis had collected in the first place, especially because most of their activities at the end of the war were conducted in secret. Many suspected that Hitler's fortune was scattered across the world, in Swiss bank accounts, crumbling castles, and even one remote Austrian lake. Farmer Ida Weisenbacher lived near Lake Toplitz during World War II. Early one morning in 1945, she awoke to pounding on her front door. As she blinked the sleep from her eyes, she saw that it was still dark out. Ida clambered to her feet, pulled a coat over her nightgown, and rushed to the door. The 21-year-old farm girl found herself faced with a man in a suit with a long black coat. His monochrome clothes were interrupted only by his bright red armband. Without even tipping his hat, the Nazi commander demanded that Ida gather her family and hitch up a wagon. They had work to do. It didn't take long for Ida's family to assemble before the Germans. They soon saw why the Nazis needed the family's wagon. The military truck and trailer they'd brought were too large to make it down the dirt road that led to Lake Toplitz. The soldiers started to unload the truck as their commanding officer marched toward the farmers. He ordered them to carry the crates as close to the lake as possible. Ida and her family had no choice but to oblige. As Ida drove back and forth between the truck and the lake, she paid attention to the cargo that the SS loaded into her wagon. The crates were each numbered on the side with a stencil, but there were no other labels or clues about what they contained. At the shore, the Nazis put each box into a boat, then rowed out to the middle of the lake. Over the dark expanse, they threw the boxes into the water. Once the Germans had finished dumping all the crates, they rowed back to shore, walked up the narrow road, and got back in their vehicles. They drove away without another word of explanation. Ida wondered what the Nazis wanted to hide so badly. 
A few months after the war's end, Ida's story became well-known in the region, and the lake quickly gained mystique. People were convinced that the Nazis had sunken their golden treasure in the water. This idea was bolstered when some locals reported stray British pounds washing ashore along Toplitz. No one knew how they got there, but the British army hadn't sunk its own currency. The cash had to have come from the crates, and if Hitler's army had sunk that money, they may have thrown some gold into the boxes as well. According to some reports, only a year after the base was abandoned and the crates were thrown into the lake, two former Nazi soldiers returned to Toplitz. They claimed they were there to climb a nearby mountain, but they camped near Lake Toplitz's shore before they ascended. It seemed very suspicious. Some locals theorized that during the war, they'd hidden a part of the treasure for themselves along the water's edge. Now they were back to retrieve it. No one could ever verify the speculation because a month later, the pair was found dead halfway up the mountain. They'd been murdered. According to the legend, no suspect was ever identified, nor could police come up with a motive for the double homicide. Rumors suggested the men had been robbed, their bodies didn't have any gold, but that absence just seemed to confirm the alleged mugging. In spite of the suspicious violence, more treasure hunters arrived to seek out whatever secrets the Nazis had left behind. Many assumed the crates could easily be fished out of the water. But Toplitz is a deceptively hostile lake. The water is frigid and notoriously murky. And beneath the surface, something deadly lurks. The lake lies nestled at the bottom of a valley. Steep cliffs tower above its quiet shores. That means anytime a tree falls on any part of the mountain, it can roll downhill and fall into the lake. Nearly every body of water holds some submerged trees, but Lake Toplitz's unique location means it contains a jungle of stumps, branches, and tangled roots. It has been described as an underwater forest. And though the lake bed is over 300 feet deep, the trees that fall in float somewhere halfway down, creating a false bottom. At those depths where light doesn't penetrate, the decaying branches can easily snare divers' arms and legs. Even more worrisome is the fact that these large logs can move and shift, meaning that the path you make down may be impossible to follow back up. Even the most rigorously trained divers could easily get trapped in the underwater labyrinth. This became apparent in 1947 when a team of U.S. Navy divers was assigned to investigate Lake Toplitz. The U.S. government, like the rest of the world, was on the hunt for Hitler's hidden gold, and they'd heard about the crates. The Americans navigated the frigid waters, slowly making their way down until they encountered the false bottom. In the near pitch-black darkness, it was hard to make out how vast it truly was. One diver, whom we'll call Ted, spotted what looked like an opening and headed in. He slowly made his way past a mat of floating branches, but then the logs began to shift. Ted lost track of which direction he'd come from or which way was up, 
everything was disorienting. As he began to panic, Ted became entangled in the underwater trees. His companions frantically tried to free him, but his leg was pinned. There was no way to get him out. The other divers were running low on oxygen, and they had to make a terrible decision. They left Ted behind. As the survivors breached the surface, they knew they'd been lucky to make it out alive. They reported how Ted had drowned in the lake. Future teams would inevitably face the same danger. In light of their testimony, the Navy called off the search for the gold. But that tragedy didn't discourage later treasure hunters, and some of them met bloodier and more mysterious fates. In another story of the lake, a French geography teacher came to Lake Toplitz in 1952, searching for treasure and methodically digging in the soft soil. Each hole he dug was empty, but he wasn't discouraged. There was a lot of shoreline to cover. It would only take one piece of gold to make the endeavor worth the effort. Unfortunately, we'll never know if he was successful. After he arrived at Lake Toplitz, the teacher's body was found beside one of his many holes. It appeared that he'd been struck in the back of the head. If he'd uncovered anything, it's possible that the assailant took the loot after they murdered him. According to one source, when the Austrian police investigated the teacher's death, they found two more bodies on the opposite bank, both killed by gunshot wounds to the head. The authorities couldn't determine what these murdered visitors had to do with the teacher or the Nazi gold. It's possible the crimes weren't related. Or maybe the competition for the treasure was heating up. And someone was willing to kill to find it first. Coming up... Lake Toplitz unveils more secrets, and the treasure seems closer than ever. Now, back to the story. Isolated in the Alps, Lake Toplitz was a hotbed for Nazi war activity in the latter days of World War II. But as the German army retreated, local farmers saw the fleeing soldiers dropping mysterious crates into the lake. After over a decade of searching, no one surfaced with any treasure. But that wasn't for lack of trying. The harsh conditions made the lake nearly impenetrable, and several divers and fortune hunters lost their lives in the search. In 1959, German magazine Stern financed a mission to the depths of Toplitz. They hoped that with better funding and state-of-the-art equipment, their divers could actually make it through the submerged jungle to the bottom of the lake. Their team jumped into the water, knowing full well the dangers that awaited them. They carefully swam to the lake's false bottom. It looked like a maze, but they took their time as they edged past spindly branches and tangled roots. Within minutes, they were through and headed toward the lake bed. As they descended, they scoured the ground for crates. Through murky waters, one diver spotted something nestled in the silt. It didn't look natural. It was almost a perfect square, like one of the boxes. As the divers slowly drew closer, 
their suspicions were confirmed. It was a Nazi crate, and just beyond it, a handful more were scattered around. The divers were elated. This was the first time anyone had seen the containers in over a decade, and the team was desperate to discover the secrets inside. The German diving team was nervous as they slowly hoisted the first crate to the surface. It had been underwater for 14 years, slowly rotting at the bottom of the lake. They hoped the box would hold together. If any of the treasures spilled back into the depths, there was no guarantee they'd ever see it again. Thankfully, the few boxes they found made it safely to shore. There were far fewer than the dozens of crates they'd heard about, but it was a start. Now it was time to finally see what the Nazis had worked so hard to hide. The divers' imaginations ran wild with thoughts of gold and jewels. But when they pried the crates open, they didn't find any precious gems or coins. Instead, they saw paper British pounds and various wartime documents. The discouraging news led some of the divers to lose hope. If these crates didn't contain gold, maybe none of them did. Perhaps the legend of the submerged Nazi trove was just that, a legend. But other treasure hunters became even more enthusiastic after the find. The idea of a mysterious hidden treasure was just too romantic and enticing. In 1963, two German adventurers, a former Nazi officer named Georg Freiberger, and his friend, Karl Heinz Schmidt, hired a diver named Alfred Egner to visit the region. The Germans had heard the stories and were convinced that there was more to be found at the bottom of Toplitz. Freiberger assisted Egner with his gear and escorted him out to the middle of the lake. Then... Freiberger watched as Egner disappeared into the depths. Minutes passed. When Egner didn't return right away, the former officer hoped it was a good sign. Maybe the diver had found something. But as the clock ticked with no sign of Egner, Freiberger knew something was wrong. He paced on the shore, skimming the horizon. Egner was due to come up for air, but he never did. A later investigation determined that Egner got entangled in Toplitz's debris-filled depths. With no one there to help him, he tragically drowned. But his companion didn't stick around long enough to find that out. When Egner didn't reappear, Freiberger and Schmidt fled. No one knew why, but it was possible he was afraid of the investigation that was sure to follow. And the police would have easily determined that Freiberger was a former Nazi. After Egner's fatal accident, the Austrian government banned diving in the lake completely. They'd seen too many treasure hunters die. While the embargo was mostly effective, it increasingly added to the mystique of the lake. Now fortune seekers believed the government was hiding something. The curious and the adventurous alike ventured to Toplitz in secret. But if anyone found the gold, they didn't advertise it. And as the years passed, people stopped talking about the lake. With no new evidence, 
Fewer treasure seekers tried to scour the waters and the shore. And with fewer hunters on the prowl, the legend slowly slipped into obscurity. By the early 1980s, it seemed the lake's secrets would never be revealed. But in 1983, Hans Frieke, a German biologist, formally requested access to the lake. He was looking for a unique type of worm that lived in extreme environments, like the bottom of toplets. His expedition was only approved by the Austrian government because it had nothing to do with Nazi memorabilia. Or so he said. The first sanctioned dive in 20 years featured a one-man submarine. Frieke descended through the lake's false bottom, confident that the decaying wood posed little challenge to his submersible. When he reached the bottom, Frieke found something more intriguing than the worms he'd come looking for. He uncovered a trove of previously undiscovered artifacts. Tons of wartime scrap clearly discarded by the Nazis, were mired in the muck. Frika spotted the broken remains of torpedoes, measuring instruments, and prototype rockets. He also saw several large metal and wood crates. Unfortunately, his sub didn't have the expensive equipment necessary to lift or carry the boxes. Plus, the Austrian government hadn't given him a permit to retrieve anything from the bottom. So, Frieke just snapped a series of detailed photos. Supposedly, the image showed Russian script printed on the boxes. People have wondered if the containers held stolen Russian gold, which Hitler's forces had seized and hidden in the lake. Apparently, Frieke was so fascinated with his find that he returned to Toplitz several times over the next three years, each time to take more photographs but it seems that he never brought gear to pull anything up from the bottom. It's hard to say why Frika didn't try to recover the crates. Perhaps the equipment he needed was simply too expensive. The Austrian government probably wouldn't have permitted his return if they'd believed he was treasure hunting. Whatever the case, Frika only ever took photos, and fascinating photos at that. One showed an underwater door possibly the entrance to an underwater bunker. The details are hard to make out because the light at those depths was minimal and the picture wasn't very clear. But it seemed to show a hatch that opened into a concrete structure. From there, an outline of what might have been a tunnel led away from the lake, possibly toward the shore or the nearby mountains. Allegedly, in the 1990s, only a few years after Frika's find, a group of explorers found a derelict bunker only 200 feet from the lake. This previously unexplored ruin held no treasure, but within its crumbling frame, explorers found the entrance to an underground tunnel. It seemed to lead toward Lake Toplitz, but the tunnel had collapsed and the explorers couldn't confirm where it ultimately ended. The fortress's passageway could have been the same tunnel that Frieke saw in the photographs, but it was impossible to say for sure. The positions lined up, but it was just as likely that the tunnel only ended a few yards away from the fortress in the base's munitions bunkers. The above-ground bunker has never been fully investigated. It still sits there, 
a crumbling beacon to those who believe in the lost Nazi gold. A few years after the hidden tunnel was found, an American research team from a private company called Oceaneering Technologies approached the Austrian government. They requested permission to search the lake. Theirs would be the most comprehensive search ever because they had major funding. They would use the footage from their dive to make a documentary for CBS called Hitler's Lake. The Austrian government was reluctant to let the foreign team of underwater investigators dredge up the past. But after a long negotiation, Austria granted the research team a 30-day window to investigate the lake. Perhaps they hoped engineering technologies would turn up empty-handed and solve Toplitz's illegal diving problem. But the team was confident in their abilities. And in 1999, with the blessing of the government, the first full-scale modern search of Lake Toplitz began. Their findings changed the narrative of the Nazis' treasure trove forever. Up next, Oceaneering Technologies dives to the bottom of Toplitz and finally finds answers. And now, back to the story. In 2000, an Oceaneering Technologies expedition launched a 30-day mission to find lost artifacts at the bottom of Lake Toplitz. Since the team had heard stories of British pounds washing ashore, they suspected that they might find more at the bottom of the lake. So they reached out to someone who might be able to identify the banknotes, Adolf Berger. Berger was an 82-year-old Holocaust survivor who'd written a memoir about his time in the Jewish concentration camps. He'd been forced to take part in the largest counterfeiting operation of all time, Operation Bernhard. It had all begun in the early 1940s when Berger was a typographer. As other Jewish people were arrested and sent to concentration camps, Berger remained at his home in Slovakia. But he wasn't willing to sit by and let his countrymen suffer. He began forging baptismal certificates, helping Jewish people pretend they'd been Roman Catholic their entire lives. But the forgeries put Berger in danger. When the Gestapo discovered his illegal actions in 1942, they arrested him and sent him to Auschwitz. Soon after his arrival, he was reassigned to another Nazi facility near Berlin. His unique talent for forgery had gotten him arrested, but now it would keep him alive. The Nazis assigned Berger and other printers, engravers, and bookbinders to a top-secret project, Operation Bernhard. It was supposed to destabilize Allied economies by flooding them with fake money, creating hyperinflation. The operation began with the British pound, the Germans produced about 130 million counterfeit British pounds. They planned to drop the currency into Britain by plane or through spies. In 1945, after learning of this scheme, the Bank of England recalled all their paper currency over five pounds in value. They completely redesigned the pound and started over. Around the same time, the Germans also turned their eyes toward manufacturing fake U.S. dollars. On February 22, 1945, 
Berger's team successfully replicated the $100 bill. They were set to print up to a million dollars a day. But less than 24 hours later, the Germans evacuated the facility and retreated from the encroaching Russian army. That was the last anyone heard from the operation for decades. In 2000, the Oceaneering Technologies crew brought Adolf Berger to Lake Toplitz so he could identify anything related to Operation Bernhard. And unlike the last government-approved search in 1983, this team had equipment to haul whatever they found back to the surface. The team wanted their exploration to be safe, so rather than dispatch divers, they sent a robot into the lake. It was called the Phantom and was designed for deep-sea exploration. Controlled remotely by pilot Jeff Kowalishin, the machine had a wide-angle camera in its front and two claw-like arms. It could recover whatever artifacts they found. On the first day of their search, the Oceaneering Technologies team dropped the Phantom in the water. It sank slowly beneath the layer of trees and landed on the lake bottom. It was so dark, the Phantom's video feed only illuminated three feet at a time. And its search proved difficult since the lake bed was covered in a dense layer of silt. With each inch it covered, the Phantom kicked up sediment, creating blinding clouds of debris. In spite of the murky waters, it didn't take long for the Phantom to make a discovery. In its first few days, the robot found a promising-looking box on the floor of the lake. Excitedly, the team dragged the crate up to the surface. The crew pried it open to find a handful of beer caps and a note that said in German, Sorry, not this time. Shrugging off the decades-old practical joke, the Oceaneering Technologies crew resumed their painstaking search. They operated the Phantom in 12-hour shifts, day after day, looking for something, anything out of the ordinary. For weeks, the robot searched the lake inch by inch. The team covered nearly the entire lake bed, traveling 35 underwater miles total, but had nothing to show for it. There were no signs of an underground bunker or of a tunnel leading to one. Even more disconcerting was the lack of boxes. The team debated whether the crates had disintegrated or had been buried by decades of new debris from the hillsides. The treasure might be lost forever. But pilot Jeff Kowalishin refused to give up. When he only had a handful of days left, the Phantom finally showed him what he was looking for. The video feed displayed crates, or something that had once been the crates. The picture was murky but promising. It didn't show any intact boxes, but the team spotted planks of wood with suspicious markings on them. One beam seemed to have a number stenciled on its side, just like the Nazi crates that Ida Weisenbacher had seen in 1945. With bated breath, Kowalishin piloted the Phantom to grab it. The machine held on to the plank and began to float to the surface. But somehow, just as the Phantom drew near to the research boat, the wood slipped from the robot's grasp and vanished into the murky waters below. The team frantically sent the Phantom back to the bottom, but they couldn't find the lost plank. 
the Americans decided that they needed something more adaptable than the Phantom to search the bottom of the lake, something that might give them a bit more hands-on control. They agreed to send a person into the treacherous depths. Oceaneering Technologies brought in a one-man sub called a WASP, which was designed to search waters up to 2,000 feet deep. They brought in an experienced pilot named Ken Tyler to man it. He dove 200 feet and investigated the remains. Picking up where the Phantom had left off, Tyler searched the area where the planks had been. And a little further ahead, he found the remains of more crates. He carefully examined the boxes without carrying them to the surface. The wasp withdrew stacks of black and white paper wrapped together in massive packages. The waterlogged pages began to slowly dissolve in the sub's grasp. Taking great care not to damage them further, Tyler hauled up the bundles. The wasp team made 15 dives to retrieve all the ruined boxes of paper. It took them more than 34 hours to dredge up all that they could find. But finally, electrified with excitement and wonder, the American team examined the soggy bundles. Three words were clearly legible on each page. Bank of England. They'd found Operation Bernhard's forged currency. Adolf Berger had never expected to see the bills again. Contradictory feelings surged through him. The money came from some of the worst years of his life. But the discovery was an incredible find for historians. He confirmed that these were the exact fake bills that he'd unwillingly made for Hitler's war effort. The crates even bore the date of their creation, January 1945. After their difficult expedition, the team had found invaluable bundles of forged British pound notes, but no Nazi gold. You'd think Oceaneering Technologies' discovery would settle the mystery. But it hasn't. Even after years of searching, some people still believe that there are more crates out there overflowing with coins and ingots. Treasure hunters point to the series of murders around the area. It seems too coincidental that so many people died near the lake if there's not hidden treasure there. Especially since several victims had ties to the former Nazi base. It's also known that Hitler had tons of gold and that Lake Toplitz housed a Nazi base on its shores. And a local family watched the retreating army dump boxes into the water. But after decades of searching, no gold has ever made it to the surface. Nor is there any sign that it's resting on the lake bed. Several people made it to the bottom, but none of them ever saw any coins, bars, or ingots not even a twinkle of something metallic. There's little to no evidence that the boxes ever held coins or ore. Instead, the remains of Operation Bernhard were probably the only treasure ever in the lake. Lake Toplitz is a time capsule, a seemingly peaceful yet hostile body of water. It holds the remains of stories, burgers counterfeiting, the Weizenbachers' early morning encounter with the Nazis, and countless divers who died in the murky depths. 
It's clear that the Nazis chose the perfect hiding place to dispose of their foul deeds. As time marches on, nature layers more trees on top of its prize. If any gold ever existed in toplets, it's probably entirely buried today and utterly inaccessible. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back next week with a short Gone Bite on Spotify and back everywhere else the week after. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Gone for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Gone was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 